You know, sometimes the hardest thing in life is knowing your own mind, knowing what you really think, what to do, especially the case when you're facing an unknown situation with, um, with new factors. For example, nearly every adult here has struggled through decisions like these. Um, should we sell the car or not, right? Uh, should I take that invitation or not? I've got, I've got two job offers, uh, A and B. They're both really good. They've each got real weaknesses. Which one should I take? Raise your hand if you've ever struggled with decisions like those. Yeah, of course, everybody has. And when we're going through those kind of decisions, there are, there are particular struggles that happen. One of them is we're just not sure what we really think. Or what's the best thing to do? For example, let me show you a particular kind of situation that we have seen often around here the last few years, okay? Here's just a scenario I'm going to describe. I've seen this many, many times. The company or department or ministry or city or whatever it is has grown rapidly, right? There are huge infrastructure needs, policy, personnel, uh, structures in, in uh, physical structures. Sustainability is a really major concern. But... The problem is that a lot of the stakeholders in the situation, they want their reward now, even if that's not necessarily best for the long term. So you've got this person, we'll call him person A, is in charge of managing X aspect of this. It could be the whole thing, it could be a part, whatever. A lot of you are relating to this, nodding your head, yeah. And, and here's, here's person A's problem. They read all the best practices literature, and basically it's a formula for mediocrity. That's all it is. There's no... There's no real adventure there. It's just a bunch of cover-your-backside foolishness, right? And then they hire consultants. Consultants can be wonderful. I want to say that. Many of you are consultants. They're great. But the consultants they end up with are a bunch of vultures who just take all your money and spout psychobabble at you, okay? In a situation like that, fast-growing situation where you've got those kind of factors, what's person A supposed to do? How do they figure out what's supposed to happen, okay? Now... With that scenario, let me add this. When you're in fluid, uncertain situations where it's hard to know and make up your mind, let me ask you this question. What are your dreams like? You see, when you're reorganizing a company or you're deciding whether to go on a date or not, whenever you're uncertain of your footing, your dreams can get kind of weird, can't they? You see, sometimes these stressors provoke very vivid, very concerned dreams or nightmares, like the one uh, where you can't remember your middle school locker combination, which shouldn't be a big deal, but for some reason in this dream, the fate of the world hangs on you being able to remember that middle school combination and you just can't get it, right? Now, don't misunderstand, I am not suggesting that our dreams are massively significant. Sigmund Freud was wrong, Okay. <clears throat> dreams do not tell your story. His entire psychotherapy worldview was a house of cards that the winds of theology and pharmacology have blown down. Freud was a preening loon who is now greatly discredited. Let me tell you how I really feel. However, <laughs> let's give the man his due. Give him his due. Freud was correct in stating that dreams matter. No, they never tell you your past, as he claimed, but dreams can reveal your present mindset. You got that? Dreams are absolutely not the, un, the they are unreliable markers of your life. They are not telling your story. However, they can reveal some of the present mindset and stress you're going through. And in some very limited cases, dreams can tell the future. I'll show you. Open your Bible to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel, right after Ezekiel, just before Hosea in your Old Testament. Daniel chapter 2, let's read verses 1 through 9. In a limited case like this, dreams can actually tell the future. In the second year of his reign, 
<clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar had dreams that troubled him, and sleep deserted him. So the king gave orders to summon the magicians, mediums, sorcerers, and Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. When they came and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream and am anxious to understand it. The Chaldeans spoke to the king. Now Aramaic begins here. We'll get to that in a moment. May the king live forever, which is a ridiculous wish, by the way. Anyway, may the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will give the interpretation. The king replied to the Chaldeans, my word is final. If you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, you'll be torn limb from limb and your house is made into a garbage dump. But if you make the dream and its interpretation known to me, you'll receive gifts, a reward, great honor from me. So make the dream and its interpretation known to me. They answered a second time, may the king tell the dream to his servants and we'll make known the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain you're trying to gain some time. By the way, that phrase gain some time apparently is really hard to get from the Aramaic, uh, the Royal Aramaic into English. It, it can be translated trying to undermine me. Uh, you're trying to, to thwart me. Um, you're trying to gain some time because you see that my word is final. If you don't tell me the dream, there is one decree for you. You have conspired to tell me something false or fraudulent until the situation changes. So tell me the dream, and I will know you can give me its interpretation. As we summarize in your notes, uh, a fast-rising ruler is concerned. Folks, at this point in his life, Emperor Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon has won great battles. Uh, second year of his reign, we don't know if that really means the second year of his solo reign or the second year of his co-reign with his father, Nabopolassar, different kingdoms measured differently, but it's very early in his life, and he has conquered all of the wealthy parts of the known world. He has conquered all the wealthy parts of the known world, but this is very important. Listen, he has not consolidated his power. His situation is actually incredibly similar to that business scenario we talked through earlier. Where should this young conqueror go next? How should he handle this polyglot empire? How should he handle all the amazing wealth and power and the incredible stress of growth? How should he best deal with all of his consultants that you've just met or with all of his best practices experts? And he seems to be especially troubled about how to handle all the various stakeholders in this new created empire. In the midst of that situation, Nebuchadnezzar is beaten down by a vivid, troubling dream. Verse 3 in the Hebrew speaks volumes. Am anxious is the Hebrew phrase paham ruah. Paham ruah literally means, my breath is stuck, right? Have you ever, had, you ever had a situation where you had a blow or a fall and you had the wind knocked out of you? You said to somebody, I had the wind knocked out of me. Anybody ever experienced that? That is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is saying here. And, and what's really cool is paham ru'ah is, is actually a spiritual term, but, but it began as a physical term. It shows the anxiety he's facing here, how deeply troubled he is. It is shocking stress to employ this phrase to show that there is almost a physical aspect to his spiritual pain. Adam Newman, the co-founder of WeWork, faced a very similar problem. A modern Nebuchadnezzar, Mr. Newman, was heavily swayed by pagan mysticism. He was into all kinds of weird pagan mystic stuff, like the Babylonian. Mr. Newman's empire, WeWork, grew at a ridiculous pace. In fact, WeWork rose up so fast that the whole business structure was actually shaky. It was never established. And it's something people didn't recognize until they issued their initial public offering. When they gave out the information preparatory to their, their filing for an IPO, look what happened to their stock. What it, one of the most precipitous drops in all of human history. And the reason is everybody could then recognize this thing is not founded well. 
When the nightmares came to Mr. Newman, and they did come, he took copious amounts of drugs and alcohol just to keep himself from dreaming. It hasn't necessarily worked, but the abuse of his body did lead directly to his downfall and his dismissal from the company that he founded. Emperor Nebuchadnezzar faces a similar situation, but he's not that stupid. Instead of checking out with drugs, he instead decides to use this stressful situation. This is brilliant. In a brilliantly crafty mood, Nebuchadnezzar molds this crisis into a chance to eliminate one of the biggest power blocks that could operate against his leadership. He goes after the wise men of the empire. Four different words used for these wise men here in chapter 2. Hartumim comes from a word for cuneiform writing. Cuneiform writing was the amazing breakthrough that led to Akkadian and other languages like that. It's they had little pointed sticks and, uh, and they would use them to push into clay and make letters that way. And uh, hartumim is a word for the authors, the scribes, the, the expert bureaucrats. By the way, it's the exact same word that appears in your book of Genesis uh, in chapter 41 describing the people who are working against Joseph. Um, Ashafim. Ashafim is probably best understood as a word wizard. This is somebody who's really good at manipulating words. Um, they're lobbyists. They're very much like our lobbyists today if our lobbyists are really into demon worship. Okay, that, that's what they were like. Mechashfim are magicians, which is not used as a positive. Don't think Harry Potter. Think something very, very dark. Think Voldemort. Okay, the... Um, the same term, by the way, is also used in the book of Exodus uh, back in earlier chapter when uh, it describes the guys who threw down their staves and they became snakes and, and then Moses snake ate there. Anyway, Kasim uh, are Chaldeans. Now, originally for a long time, that was just a people group. By this point in human history, it's being used of astrologers, people that we would call New Age nuts, right? These are people from California. So anyway, I'm kidding. All right. Now, just joking. I love you, Californians. I'm not now. I do. These bureaucrats reply, the king has it wrong. He needs to give them the dream so they can do their pretend hocus-pocus with their dream manuals. And yes, I do mean manuals. Archaeologists have uncovered a number of tablets that are actual dream manuals that were used by these trained bureaucrats. These manuals, when they're translated, they read like Freud. They really, it's, it's, it is Sigmund Freud. There are various images, and then it relates exactly what each of those must mean. It's nonsense. It's really goofy. But that was their stock and trade. There was a special kind of learning that supposedly allowed them to interpret. By interpreting, they actually were directing the empire. You see, being the interpreter allowed them to keep their position of power. By the way, many Bibles note, as, as ours did, that verse 4 shifts into the Aramaic language. This lasts into the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel. Akkadian, this right here, was the normal language of Assyria and Babylon. Uh, it's a cuneiform script. Hebrew uh, is a flowing script. It is the language of God's chosen people. But Daniel 2 through 7 doesn't use either of those. Daniel 2 through 7 employs what we call Royal Aramaic. Royal Aramaic was only used for very official record keeping. Now, there are some liberal scholars who really embarrass themselves here. In fact, you may hear this, so just be ready. They'll say, well, Aramaic, uh, you know, it's a later language. Aramaic was used in Jesus' day. So there's no way, if this is an Aramaic, that Daniel was a real 6th century person. I mean, this had to have been written hundreds of years later, right? Jane, you're so ignorant. The, um, the answer is 
that Royal Aramaic was only used for a very brief period in history. If you know the joke, don't share it. That's horrible. All right. Um, a very brief period in history. Okay. Royal Aramaic was only used during the time of King Nebuchadnezzar. Actually, the Royal Aramaic used here proves that Daniel is who he says and is living when he says. It's really amazing. Anyway, the emperor and his advisors go back and forth, and it culminates in a really big power play. Go to verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king, No one on earth can make known what the king requests. Consequently, no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked anything like this of any magician, medium, or Chaldean. What the king is asking is so difficult, no one can make it known to him except the gods whose dwelling is not with mortals. Because of this, the king became violently angry and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. Now, what you may not catch is in verse 10, this is a serious threat to the emperor. They are accusing Nebuchadnezzar of violating the common law. It's a very, very serious charge. That The Chaldeans are setting the stage here for a revolution. What they're saying here, take this and take the Declaration of Independence from your country and you will see what, what our forefathers say about King George III is incredibly similar to what they're saying about Nebuchadnezzar here. This is revolutionary language here. In their very angry state, these four classes of bureaucrats make an amazing mission, by the way. In the midst of their little rebellion, they say no human can do what is asked. What they're doing is they're admitting that their Freudian system is... is Hocus pocus, it's flawed. Sadly, they don't recognize that the one true God is both transcendent, as they say, not with human, but also eminent. The real God is beyond creation, and yet he also engages with his people. Daniel's going to prove a beautiful contrast to their ignorance. Now, the king doesn't take this threat, and it is a threat. He doesn't take it sitting down. He employs his own power play. Like I said, he's not stupid. This is brilliant. The emperor's reaction is a really gutsy move here. Nebuchadnezzar apparently feels that now he has enough justification that he can eliminate all the wise men. This is a political power play. So he, so he builds his case, he has them step into the trap he laid, and then he orders their executions. Thankfully, at that critical moment, a very young man, Daniel, shows bold faith. Read verses 13 through 19. The decree was issued, the wise men were to be executed, and they searched for Daniel and his friends to execute them. Again, we don't know exactly when this happened in Nebuchadnezzar's reign. It depends on how things are counted. Daniel could have finished his three years of training, or he could still be in the midst of it. Probably he has finished it. All right. Then Daniel responded with tact and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon. He asked Arioch, the king's officer, why is the decree from the king so harsh? Then Arioch explained the situation to Daniel. So Daniel went and asked the king to give him some time so that he could give the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and told his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter, urging them to ask the God of the heavens for mercy concerning this mystery so Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of Babylon's wise men. The mystery was then revealed to Daniel in a vision at night, and Daniel praised the God of the heavens. As we saw in chapter 1, Daniel is winsome. He again shows tact and discretion. When most of us would have been panicked, angry, despairing, Daniel kept his head. Look, the word choice is really convicting. This is convicting. Verse 14 says Daniel responded. The royal Aramaic is tom vom veit. Tom vom veit. It's, it's rendered in a voice that is reflexive. What that means is, this doesn't appear in our language, so let me explain for a second. It means that there is, there is another subject besides the subject of the sentence that is part of the action. It's a collaborative term. What it's telling us is that Daniel doesn't react, he responds. 
He involves Ariach with him. Tom von Veit tells us that Daniel's response was a joint action with Ariach. He built a coalition here. You ever get scared by a serious threat to something that is important to you? Raise your hand. You've been scared by a serious threat to something that matters to you. Okay. In that moment, when you're frightened, I bet you, like me, tend to react. You tend to act unilaterally. Daniel does not. He acts in concert. He sees how grave the situation is, and he responds with tact and discretion. He builds a coalition, Tom von Veit. As a result, the king's officer gives him the information he needs. In light of that information, <laughs> Daniel's brave. He is bold to go before the king. You know, he goes in and requests time. Do you know how big a gamble it is to go before an absolute monarch who is angry and to ask them for something? Okay, kids, listen. You want to experience what Daniel does here. Next time your mom is paying bills, go ask her for some money. Okay, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. You're, you're going to see the same kind of response. But Daniel takes that risk. He exercises bold faith before Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel's bold with his friends. Look, he asks them to unabashedly beg God for a miracle. No one but the Lord God Almighty can provide what they need. Now notice, by the way, look at what they say here. There's no pagan praying here. Look, there's no formula. There's no ritual. There's no loudness, no hallucinogens, no self-harm. That's what pagans did in order to force the gods to give them what the humans desired. Daniel's prayer and his explanation are very forthright. They're very trusting and undemanding. They just present their request trusting God, and God provides. Isn't verse 19 beautiful? Many of us have experienced the overwhelming power of God's provision. Sometimes we've even witnessed miracles. It's nothing to do with us. The requester gets no credit, but the giver sure does. All God's people said? Amen. And that's why Daniel praises God. Read the next section, verse 19. The mystery was then revealed to Daniel in a vision at night, and Daniel praised the God of the heavens and declared, May the name of God be praised forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. I offer thanks and praise to you, God of my fathers, because you've given me wisdom and power, and now you have let me know what we asked of you, for you have let us know the king's mystery. At least three big things are happening here. First, some attributes of God are exalted. That's the headline on the right side of your notes. Attributes of God are exalted. The character of God's name should be forever praised because he alone is wise. He alone has power and disseminates power. That's what's meant by the phrase, power belongs to him. He, <clears throat> he establishes king, uh, times and seasons. This is so cool. Times it could be translated epics. God is totally sovereign, both in a macro sense over the major epics of time and also over the micro sense of every single season as it changes. He removes kings and establishes kings. He is the real king. Anybody that has any wisdom, any knowledge, they should praise God because it comes from them. He reveals the deep and hidden things. Now, this becomes a major Bible theme into the New Testament. God has layers of information that only He can illuminate. Things, things have been present on the stage but not understood until they are lit up by His Word. Speaking of lit up, God has light. Light dwells with him. He perceives and understands all. Not so the darkness. Darkness doesn't understand God, but he fully apprehends everything. Here's how other scriptures describe those last attributes. Read them with me. You take the underlined text. Psalm 139. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, 
and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. Night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Uh, John 8, 12, your turn. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me, says Jesus, will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's what Daniel exults over. And in Daniel's poem, God is also thanked and praised. I offer thanks and praise to you, God of my fathers. God of my fathers. That's a fascinating phrase. Last weekend, we had yet uh, more wonderful weddings here in our church. And all marriages are precious. Christian weddings are really important. There's something extra special when a couple ties the knot as part of their faith community. They're surrounded by old people and young people. They've got God's saints cheering them on. There, there is a heritage. In that moment, there is a heritage that links this new family with many, many thousands who have gone before them. The beauty of that sometimes hits me like, uh, like the Hebrew phrase Daniel recorded from Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Puham Ruah. It just takes my breath away. There is a deep mystery being revealed in a Christian wedding, and not just between the couple and God, but between the couple and their forebears, between those who've gone before. That's something like what Daniel feels when he praises the God of his fathers. And Daniel recognizes what he's been given. Look, he doesn't merely have a great spiritual heritage. That's wonderful. But he has particular blessings granted only to him. Notice he doesn't praise God for the answer only. Catch this. He recognizes that in this revelation, the Lord has bestowed on him wisdom and power. Now, Daniel is not angling to be a big shot. In fact, he appears the rare human who isn't seeking fame and fortune. And yet he understand, Daniel understands what has happened here. Young as he is, he knows that God has, for his own plans and purposes, he has established Daniel as a major force in the world. Whatever else happens, as long as Nebuchadnezzar survives, Daniel is going to be incredibly valuable to this emperor. He put the wind back in the king's lungs. He solved the unsolvable. Daniel will be seen as the one who extricated Nebuchadnezzar from a dangerous, serious political position. Now Nebuchadnezzar will be established. Thanks to Daniel, the king has managed to clip the wings of the wise men, which was what he wanted to do, but he hasn't had to kill them, which would have just made them martyrs for a rebellion. It's not humility to pretend you aren't gifted. Daniel knows he's gifted. Every one of us is as well. We all have special talents. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Bible promises that you have spiritual gifts that are directly from God the Holy Spirit. We should be like Daniel, appreciating those gifts, leveraging them, using them for good. And then we praise God for the opportunity to be useful. That's humility. Humility is praising God for the opportunity to be useful. Now, watch how that humility plays out. Verse 24, go there. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had assigned to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He came and said to him, Don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king. I will give him the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said to him, I found a man among the Judean exiles who can let the king know the interpretation. The king said in reply to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, his pagan given name, Are you able to tell me the dream I had and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king, No wise man, medium, magician, or diviner is able to make known to the king the mystery he asked about, but there is a God in heaven 
who reveals mysteries. And he has let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days. Your dream and the visions that came into your mind as you lay in bed were these. Your majesty, while you were in your bed, thoughts came to your mind about what will happen in the future. The revealer of mysteries has let you know what will happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but in order that the interpretation might be made known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Stop there. We'll we'll get to the dream, but we need to camp here because this may be the most important part of the text for us today. Do you see how Daniel knows and acts on the truth? Just look at that last sentence. In his humility, Daniel sees the bottom line. The bottom line, the reason behind all this was the emperor's need to understand his own mind. It is so difficult to do what Daniel does here. Very, very few people keep their eyes on the main thing whenever they are embroiled in a political drama. The drama is not the point. The politics are not the point. The point is to be useful. Daniel understands his job is to be useful, even to a wretched pagan emperor. Daniel embraces that bottom line. That's very impressive. And this Hebrew youth also remembers the top line, what I call the top line, God's sovereign hand. Look, God's all-powerful hand is the unseen force behind and through everything. Read the underlined parts of Daniel's speech with me. Read these two lines all together. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And down here, the revealer of mysteries has let you know what will happen. Christian, I trust you realize that the revealer of mysteries has also let you know what will happen. He has. Just think of just four little things that the Bible makes very, very clear to you and to me. Messiah Jesus has established His church. He told us that that is what has happened. He said that's what would happen, and it did. Jew and Gentile together in this mysterious one, grafted into Abraham's covenant of grace that goes on forever, a covenant that is by God's grace alone, through faith alone and Messiah alone. The Bible promises us that Jesus will return to rescue believers in what the Bible calls a blessed hope. How cool is that? We are told that God will inaugurate the time of Jacob's trouble, this this horrible period called the tribulation, in which millions of lost people are going to be rescued by faith in Jesus Christ. And then we're told Messiah will establish His throne just as the prophets were told. He will establish His throne for a kingdom, and the whole world will be ruled from Jerusalem. That kingdom, by the way, becomes a major point in the book of Daniel. The top line is that if you read the Bible, you know what will happen. God has revealed it. So when you and I go through all of the stresses and drama of life, which are ubiquitous, let's be like Daniel. When we're going through all of the political drama, let's keep our eyes on the top line of God's prophecy. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. Third thing that astonishes me in this section is how Daniel avoids the sidelines. He doesn't get off track playing political games. There's no vendetta. There's no point to prove, you know, this could have been his chance. He could easily have killed off all of the non-Hebrew wise men in Babylon. He could have turned it that way, but he doesn't. That's not what he's about. He could have instituted an Andrew Jackson-like spoils system, but he doesn't. He knows none of that is the point. He stays away from those petty boundaries. Daniel avoids the political sidelines. He focuses on the bottom line and his own shaping so he can be useful. He remembers the top line of God's sovereignty. Speaking of sovereignty, Daniel shows that God's sovereign hand is the force in this dream and its interpretation. All right, now we get to the dream. Here you go. Verse 31, your majesty, 
As you were watching, suddenly a colossal statue appeared. That statue, tall and dazzling, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was terrifying. The head of the statue was pure gold. Its chest and arms were silver, its stomach and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron, its feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. As you were watching, a stone broke off without a hand touching it, struck the statue on the feet of iron and clay, iron and fired clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the fired clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were shattered and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away. Not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell you the king its interpretation. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of the heavens has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and glory. Wherever people live, or wild animals, or birds of the sky, he has handed them over to you and made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to yours, and then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule the whole earth. A fourth kingdom will be as strong as iron, for iron crushes and shatters everything, and like iron that smashes, it will crush and smash all the others. You saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's fired clay, partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, though some of the strength of iron will be in it. You saw the iron mixed with clay, and that the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. Part of that kingdom will be strong, part will be brittle." You saw the iron mixed with clay. The peoples will mix with one another, but will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with fired clay. In the days of those kings, the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms, bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. You saw a stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it, and it crushed the iron, bronze, fired clay, silver, and gold. The great God has told the king what will happen in the future. The dream is certain, and its interpretation reliable. Now, we're going to study the second half of the book of Daniel in a few weeks. And this prophecy is very important to that study. So since we'll cover it in depth then, we can set it aside for today. I know, you're disappointed. Just wait. Hang on. There are two things we need to note in order to learn from Daniel 2. Two things to note today. First, the dream is colossal. What God showed Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel was a colossus. That is a type of ancient statue. Here's the foot of a colossus. And by the way, somebody came up and said, hey, you're wearing the exact same clothes you were in that picture. <laughs> that's fascinating. I actually only have like two pants and four shirts, so that's, um, uh, that's probably right. Nebuchadnezzar's vision was of a colossus. It had five temporal created parts. That's really important for later in Daniel, so just file this away. It empires, five empires flow into one another that are temporal and created. The colossus was then destroyed. It was destroyed and the world dominated by a sixth empire. Now, this one's different. It was divinely placed, it's non-created, and it was pre-existing. That's a colossal dream. The interpretation is prophetic. Nebuchadnezzar is told that he is the golden head. Remember, please remember the whole context here in chapter 2. It's this new emperor trying to establish himself as the head of this wildly growing world force. How comforting must that interpretation have been? He's assured that he is consolidated on the throne. He is the head. In fact, God put him there. So there's no need to panic, no need to push. After him, other empires will follow. In some visible way, none of them is going to be as glorious as, as Nebuchadnezzar's Neo-Babylonian empire. And then God's eternal kingdom will suddenly fill the earth. This is prophecy. And like all prophecy, it testifies to God's power and God's plan. In terms of how it hit Nebuchadnezzar, it really is more than a little like the Aerosmith song, Dream On. And I'm totally serious here. I'm totally serious. Stephen Tyler's lyrics apply 
eerily well to Nebuchadnezzar. Look, just look at these. My life's in books written pages. Yes, it is. It's right there. Lived and learned from fools and from sages. He had all those foolish counselors, and he's had the greatest sage of all time, Daniel. You know it's true. All the things come back to you. Maybe tomorrow the good Lord will take you away. That fits. Dream on. Dream until your dreams come true. The good Lord will take Nebuchadnezzar away, and his dream will come true. Now, amazingly, all this is revealed to a completely pagan king, and it's recorded in the most respected language of the day, Royal Aramaic. And in response, this pagan emperor praises God. Let's finish the chapter, verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell face down, worshipped Daniel, and gave orders to present an offering and incense to him. The king said to Daniel, Your God is indeed God of gods, Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, since you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many generous gifts. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and chief governor over all the wise men of Babylon. At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, but it's using their pagan names here, to manage the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Nebuchadnezzar honored Daniel. In fact, the Aramaic uses three words to describe the emperor's reaction. They, they literally translate as, over his face fell. It's awesome. Nebuchadnezzar, this emperor who was so worried about his authority, he falls down before a human. Now, it's not merely about Daniel. L listen, not even a pagan. No pagan would offer incense to a mere human. Okay, verse, verse 46 is only understandable if we realize that Nebuchadnezzar is honoring Daniel as the legate, the, uh, the representative of God. And the verb worship gives us away in the original Aramaic. Um, Seged is rendered in what's called a katab. It's a perfect sense. Now, don't get lost here. The, the Aramaic perfect is unique, and it's really fascinating. Here's this. Listen, it indicates something happening outside of time. Okay. Outside, when it's in a katab sense, any Aramaic verb, it's, it's outside of time. Now, this can mean something that is going to be revealed later. It can mean something that is ongoing right now, inside or outside of time. But, but it isn't, it isn't time-based like our English perfect tenses. This is timeless. Here's the point. Nebuchadnezzar is worshiping beyond the scene that we see. He is bowing before Daniel as the representative of the timeless God. And, of course, in doing so, he honored Daniel's God. Now, it would be utterly premature to say that Nebuchadnezzar here puts his trust in Yahweh, the covenant God. But when he worships here, it does reveal some major changes in his thinking. Go, go back to what his thinking would have been. In the, in the Babylonian pantheon, there was no absolute deity. The closest thing is Marduk, who's also called Bel, and he's just a recreator. He's, he's just one of many deities. He, he, in fact, he creates by murder. He can't even do anything on his own. He's very vulnerable. He's very uncertain. In fact, humans can unseat his throne if they do the right things. He's very nervous about that. His plans are uncertain. He's local limited. The only cool thing about him is he rides a really fast dragon, which is cool. All right. By contrast, Yahweh is the creator. He is singular deity. He creates by his word. He's unassailable. He is beyond time with plans that are inexorable. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient, sees and knows everything. He is the sovereign God. Nebuchadnezzar testifies to quite a bit of that. Oh, by the way, one quick thing. This testimony that he gives right here, this is going to get him in trouble again with the pagan priestly class, but, but we'll, that's a story for later, okay? The emperor honors Daniel's God. He also then honored Daniel's compatriots. These three fellows were made prefects 
of the most important, the wealthiest province, the home city of Babylon. Now, interestingly, the Aramaic is a, is a verbal here. It, it says literally that they are to overmanage. Here's why that matters. They were not put in merely ceremonial positions. These guys are given real work to oversee real people in a real economy. This is, this is a really fascinating comment on work. And while they were established in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar wisely kept Daniel close. Look at the map up here. Wherever the emperor went, whether he was on campaign or whether he was doing one of the many judicial stops he had to do regularly to hear cases in the empire, every one of these cities were cities where he did judicial stops. Daniel was with him in every one of those. Now imagine that from Daniel's perspective. The guy who wiped out your home keeps you near him all the time to serve him. True, true, your home country of Judah deserved it, but that doesn't alter the human tendency toward bitterness, does it? And yet, as we're going to see in Daniel, there is no bitterness, none. He serves nobly. He, he just uses his position to influence for good. He's useful to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I know, I know, you're sitting there thinking... That's all great stuff, but you are wondering in your Sigmund Freud interpretation you do in your head, what does all this have to do with me, right? How does this apply to me? I don't understand. Thank you for asking, Sigmund. It's a great question. There are five things, as I went through this text, there are five things that screamed out for application in my own life, and it's possible these apply to you as well. I read this, and I was struck that I need to exercise bold faith. I need, I need to trust God and present requests without demanding but with complete trust. I, I need to use my powers for good in true humility. True humility is not pretending you haven't been gifted. True humility is using your gift to serve the Lord and people. I need to remember the top line. God is sovereign no matter the earthly drama. Do you know what a difference it would make in your life if in all of the political drama of every day, if you actually remember that God is sovereign and He has prophesied and He has revealed to you the truth? I, I need to remember the bottom line. I'm here to serve. That is what we are here for. Even my worst enemy, I am here to be useful to them. That's the bottom line. And I must remember to avoid the sidelines of petty politics. Let me tell you this. If you will do those things, Sigmund, I think you'll find it makes all the difference. Let's pray. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters that you will engage us and encourage us, especially to remember the top line, that you are sovereign and your prophecy is true. And remember the bottom line, that we are servants, just as Jesus is the servant. And I pray that by your grace we will avoid the sidelines of petty politics. Please, Lord. Dealing with issues, dealing with morality, but not getting embroiled in the nonsense of every day. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.